para with an introduction to the book of Isaiah. My dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus, we will attempt, God willing, this coming week, an outline of this book Isaiah. Naturally, we will not be able to, uh, in detail, expound every aspect of it. That will not be our intention. Our intention is merely to give you an outline study of the book, which I believe will enable you to take this matter further and to come to a better understanding of the wonderful message of this most outstanding prophet. When we pick up the Bible, you know, we pick up no ordinary book. It is the Word of God we're considering when we open the pages of this wonderful book. And I believe that not only are the words of Scripture inspired, I believe that the very setting of Scripture is inspired. I believe that God was behind even the placing of the books of the Bible because they're not always placed in chronological order and yet they always present a very wonderful message. And this is a very interesting aspect of the Word of God. We can spend the whole week in dealing with that aspect of His Word. For example, when you open the book of Genesis, you open a book that commences with God looking upon all that he made, and behold, it was very good. But the last four words of the book of Genesis are, A Coffin in Egypt. It's rather graphic that a book should end in that fashion, A Coffin in Egypt, Death and Exile. And that which which began very good ended up in that fashion. You know, the Old Testament scriptures themselves end with two words, a curse. So that the book that the uh, Jewish people carry around with them ends with a curse. And a curse of the law rests upon Israel. But the opening words, of course, of the next book, the book of Matthew, introduce us to that one who will bear away the curse. And that's the wonderful form in which we find this book, the Bible. It's a form of research to which very little is given. You take, for example, that the epistles that follow, so the epistle to the Hebrews. The basic message of the epistle to the Hebrews, what is it? Surely it is that the law is not sufficient and we need faith. And so we have that wonderful chapter of faith, the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And in that place, the writer is emphasizing the need of faith that it supplements, uh, it it, it, uh, overthrows, or not overthrows, it supersedes uh, that of the law. So the great principle of the epistle to the Hebrews is that faith supersedes the law. But you know, when you come to the next epistle, the epistle of James, that emphasizes the principle that faith is not sufficient of itself, that that faith without works is dead. Therefore, James emphasizes the need of works as well as faith. Then we have the next epistles, those, those of Peter, and Peter tells us that the trial of faith is necessary. Works is not enough. We must have the trial of faith as well. Then comes the epistles of John, and John says, look, it's not merely a matter of faith and its works and trial, we must manifest love. The next epistle, that of Jude, says love is not always the thing that we should strive for, for we should, of course, contend earnestly for the faith. And then you come to the last book, the book of Revelation, and to him that overcometh, he shall inherit all things. So that you see, as you go through those books from Hebrews to James to Peter to John to Jude and Revelation, you find the books building one upon another, as well as, of course, the revelation of God being in each of those books. And this is a very interesting aspect of the Word of God that you can take to any part of the Scriptures. And you know you can condense every book of the Bible into a few words. And those few words will build upon its predecessors. And the books of the Bible are set out like that so that we have evidence of the hand of God even in the placing of those books as well as the contents of the books themselves. Now we're going to try to study the uh, book of Isaiah. As you will understand, this is quite a large book and as I said before, it will be quite impossible for us to consider it in depth during the course of this week. We are attempting an outline study of this particular book. First of all, we consider who is a prophet and what does it relate to. 
And we want to emphasize that prophecy is not always relating to foretelling the future. It also relates to foretelling the will and purpose of Almighty God. As a matter of fact, in the Scriptures, there are more prophets who were given over to foretelling the will of God than those who were foretelling what is going to take place. We need to bear that always in mind. You will never see a prophet that's completely foretelling things. He's also emphasizing and exhorting the people as to how they should live before their God. And therefore, when we take the word pro in the word prophet, it does not always mean that which is beforehand, as in provide, but very often in place of, as in the word pronoun. So you've got the, the, uh, the, those two statements, provide and pronoun. And in the word provide, the pro means, of course, that which is pro, uh, uh, beforehand. But in the word pronoun, it means in place of. So that a prophet is one who not merely foretells the future, but also foretells it. If we turn to the seventh chapter of Exodus, we will reconcerning Moses as a prophet, and this perhaps will illustrate that which I am attempting to state. So in Exodus chapter 7 and at verse 1, concerning Moses we read this, that Yahweh said unto him, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Now in being the prophet to uh, Moses, he was not foretelling things as foretelling the will and purpose of Almighty God. And that was, of course, the function of a prophet. So that Aaron went instead of Moses. So you see, there we have the word prophet used in relation to one who is instead of another rather than one that foretells another. And in the prophets of old, there were men who were there instead of God and they exhorted the people or perhaps condemned the people because of their indifference to the things of God as well as setting forth the future purposes of Almighty God. When we come to the first of Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul again defined a prophet. And you will find from these words here that any one of us can come become prophets. So uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says in the first of Corinthians chapter 14, he says, Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So that in the words of the Apostle Paul here, a prophet was one who spake, as we have it here, to edification, to exhortation and to comfort. And when we take hold of the Word of God, and when we speak to people in accordance with the Word of God, even though we're pointing out the will of God, we are basically prophesying in the terms of the Apostle Paul's statement there. So that when we come to the prophets, we must understand that we are coming to men who are going to tell us the will of God as well as foretelling the purpose of God. Thus, whilst all prediction is prophecy, all prophecy is not prediction. We have in that statement a very clear definition, I think, of a prophet. That whilst all prediction is prophecy, all prophecy is not prediction. But whether, whether it is foretelling or foretelling the will of God, whether it is predicting the will of God, uh, the purpose of God, or stating the will of God, all true prophecy is inspired. Now when we come to consider the word prophet in its Hebrew form, we find a most interesting word. The Hebrew word is the word nebai, and it comes from a root signifying to boil or bubble over. And Gersenius says that it is derived from a metaphor of a fountain bursting forth from the heart of man into whom Yahweh hath poured his spirit. So there we have a definition of the word prophet. It relates to a metaphor of a fountain bursting from the heart of man uh, into whom Yahweh's spirit. So as God has poured his spirit into the heart of that man, the effect of that spirit 
burst up from his heart like the waters from an irrepressible fountain. And therefore, as far as a prophet is concerned, when the Spirit of God got hold of him, the impulse to speak was irresistible. He could not help it. He had to speak. He couldn't bottle it up. No more than you could bottle up a fountain that's going to burst forth in that fashion. So the prophet could not resist the impulse to speak. You have, for example, in the chapters of Numbers, around about chapter Numbers 24, you have the experience of Balaam, the prophet of Babylon, how that he desired to curse the people of God. But when he stood up there to speak, when he was paid and hired to speak, instead of cursing them, he blessed them. And whilst he wanted to earn the hire that was offered unto him, he could not help but speak the voice and the words of Almighty God. There was a prophet. And so he spake words that he perhaps did not understand himself. And he couldn't resist that impulse so to speak. Take Jeremiah as the example. In the 20th chapter of Jeremiah, we have the experience of Jeremiah when he determined that he would no longer speak concerning these things. He said, as he spake concerning the will of God, no one took any notice. And therefore, what was the use of it all? He was only incurring upon himself distress as people ridiculed him or opposed him or even persecuted him. What was the use of speaking when things were like that? When people would not take any heed to his speech? When people only opposed him and persecuted him? So Jeremiah the prophet determined that no longer would he speak to the people in that way. They weren't worthy of it. They weren't deserving of it. We read in the 20th chapter of his prophecy his determination in that regard. And in verse 9 we read these words. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. That was his determination. But he couldn't help himself. And he says, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. That was his experience. He couldn't help but speak. And as the Spirit of God took hold of Jeremiah, irrespective as to consequences, Jeremiah had to speak. You know, Paul was like that. We read in the first Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16, the words of Paul, Woe is me, he said, if I preached not the gospel. And we know what happened to Paul when he did preach the gospel. But he was so moved by the fire of that word, it so governed his heart, that woe is me, he said, if I preached not that word. And we have the words of Peter too. Very interesting words in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Peter encourages us in our study of this particular theme. He says in verse 19 of the first chapter of his second epistle, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Actually, those words ought to be rendered like this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed in your hearts as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn of the day star arise. So you see what Peter is telling us is here is a light in the words of prophecy. A light that illuminates the path before us until that great day shall dawn when light will no longer be necessary because the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his beams and that light will illuminate the whole of the world at that particular time and therefore the word of prophecy will no longer be necessary. But in the meantime, he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto we do well that we take heed. And he says in verse uh, 20, Know this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now understand that he is not talking about us interpreting the prophets. Those words really can be rendered uh, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any prophet's own prompting. It didn't come from the heart of the prophet. We've got to interpret prophecy, but it didn't come from the heart of the, the prophet. As Brother Roberts renders those words, no prophecy of the scripture is of any prophet origination. It didn't originate with the prophet. 
Jeremiah didn't originate the prophecies that he uttered, nor did Isaiah. They came from God. And that is how those words should be rendered in that 20th verse. Nothing to do with our interpretation of prophecy. What Peter is saying is this, Know this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture comes from the prophet's own heart. It comes from God. And therefore it should be treated in that fashion. And he, he explains this. For prophecy came not of old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And hence it came from God. In other words, he is telling us that when we come to study the Scriptures, understand this first, that inspiration did not arise from within. It was poured into the prophet from without. It came from Almighty God. And therefore, when a prophet was appointed to his position, he was anointed with the holy oil, the same as was a priest, the same as was a king. And that told everyone that the prophets, inspiration came from Almighty God. And the anointing of the Spirit was an indication that only from God came the power of that man to speak. Now when we come to the book of Acts, we come upon a very interesting and a challenging statement. Because we learn from the book of Acts in such places as Acts chapter 3 and verse 24, and in Acts chapter 13 and verse 20, and you find this hinted at also in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, that Samuel was among the first of the prophets. That is how those words read, that he was among the first of the prophets. He was the first of the prophets. But that's simply not true. He wasn't the first of the prophets. There were many prophets before Samuel. There was Moses who was a prophet. And everyone was said that he would be a prophet unto Moses. And not only that, we have Balaam and we have other prophets before Samuel. Why then is Samuel called the first of the prophets? And here we come to a very, very interesting thing that is in the background of most of the scriptures. And that is this, that what Samuel did was establish the first of the schools of the prophets. And you know, right through the history of Israel, there were these schools of the prophets these companies, and Samuel, Samuel organized these companies of the prophets. Samuel lived at a time, as you know, when as far as the, the king was concerned, he was extremely weak, he was a fleshly man, and as far as the priesthood is concerned, it had fallen into disrepute. So he lived at an age when both the king and the priests were not com uh, affecting their work correctly. And in order to counter that state of things that had developed, Samuel organized what is called the Company of the Prophets. And we, are met, we meet those when we turn to the first of Samuel and at chapter 19, verses 20 and 24. And there we read of the occasion when, of course, David sought the refuge of Samuel. And we learn that David sought Samuel and Samuel was in Ramah. And Saul came after David and learned that David was with, Saul, uh, with Samuel. And then as far as Saul was concerned, he sought Samuel out. And we read in verse, uh, verse, 19, uh, verse 20 of the first of Samuel 19, And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now, I want you to analyse those words very, very clearly, closely. We read there of the company of the prophets and Samuel assuming the authority over them all. He was standing as appointed over them. So there you have a company of prophets and chief among them is Samuel. That's why he's called the first of the prophets. He's organised that company of the prophets. Later on, Saul went down himself personally in order to capture David. And when he came to the company of the prophets and he saw them all organised like they were and he saw Samuel at the head of them and they were possibly singing hymns or whatever they were doing, Saul was so moved at that time that he too came under the spell of the Spirit. And we read concerning him that he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. That doesn't mean that he was foretelling the future. 
It means that he was motivated, as I said before, by the spirit of prophecy. And prophecy is not merely to foretell the future, but express the will and purpose of God. So there was Saul, who was going to take David. Now Paul and Deborah before Samuel, and he's too speaking concerning the will and purpose of Almighty God. And he lay down there, and they said, in astonishment, is Saul also among the prophets? You see what Samuel did. In a time when the king was in that in, of that character, and when the priesthood was a feat as well, what he did was organise a protest against them. And this was a minority of people within Israel called the Company of the Prophets who maintained the principles and the standards of Almighty God when others were turning from them. And right throughout that, from that time onwards, the Company of the Prophets can be found in Israel. They were a little minority group protesting at the time against those that were turning away from the things of God protesting all the time a company that was there they were there in the days of Samuel they were there in the days of Isaiah they were there in the days of Jeremiah and the other prophets they were there in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ because he had his little company too of prophets and so did Paul likewise and Peter as well a little company of people that constantly set before their contemporaries the purpose and the standards of Almighty God. So at a time when Saul was acting like that and the priests were like the descendants of Eli, there was a company of the prophets maintaining the standards that should be maintained and proclaiming to the Israel how that they should live before their God. You know, we need that spirit today within the brotherhood. And I believe that there's a tremendously powerful excitation in what the school of the prophets were doing, the company of the prophets. A tremendous exhortation. We're reading about Elijah, aren't we? In our daily readings. And you know, we, we read about Elijah, how he fled down to Horeb. And there he saw the manifestation of Yahweh. And there he was warned to go back because there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to bow. And he was told they had to be brought out. They had to be organized. And the protest against the wickedness of that time had to be maintained by those who were prepared to follow Elijah. And he was told also to go and anoint Elisha as his successor and to organize that company of the prophets, which I, Elisha did. And you will find, as our readings continue, how Elisha did that. You'll read about the sons of the prophets and how that they were found in different places. And it speaks a lot in the second of Kings of the sons of the prophets. They weren't really sons of prophets in the sense that their prophet was a father. They were sons of prophets in the sense that they continued the, prophet, the prophetic message. And you see here, in this statement that we find in the first of Samuel 19 verse 20, Take note of that word company. It's a very important word. It's from the Hebrew word cable. And if you look at that Hebrew word cable, it means a rope. So why do we have that word here translated company? What's a rope got to do with a company? It's got this to do with a company. You take a rope. You can untwine it thread by thread. You can take any one of those threads and you can snap it. It's very easy so to do. But bind it together. Make it a rope. Try now to snap it. And you can't. Because each little thread is providing a little bit of strength to the rope as a whole. Take those threads one by one and the rope loses its power. That was the company of the prophets in the days of Samuel. There was a company of people that were welded together in a common objective. And that common objective was to stand up against the forces of evil and of apostasy and of laxity that were sweeping the nation at that time. And Samuel was over them. He was directing the issue. And they were standing there firmly together, a company of prophets prophesying, not foretelling, but foretelling the purpose of Almighty God. And then when you come, of course, to the time of Elijah, he anointed Elisha. Why? because he was to be the chief of the prophets at that time. And he was to organise the prophetic school at that particular time. And so you find that when you go to the second of Kings 2 and 7, 6 and 1 and so forth, you find there how that 
Elisha is associated with the school of the prophets because they were men in whom the prophetic message had dominated their witness as far as Israel's concerned. You come to Amos who was told to go up into the northern kingdom and Amos went up into the northern kingdom and when he was challenged there he says, look I wasn't a prophet nor was I of the sons of the prophets. By that he meant he wasn't even of the school of the prophets. But he said, I was a herdsman and I was following the animals and Yahweh took hold of me and he sent me up here. I don't want to come here. But you see, he was motivated by such, such a power of God that he could not help himself. So you see, when we come as far as Isaiah is concerned, we have one of the prophets, the chief of the prophets in his day and generation. He's also the first of the four major prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. And as there were four faces in the standards of the tribes and as there were four faces in the cherubim, so there are four major prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures and there are four accounts of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the very faces of those standards answer to the the, uh, the themes of these various prophets. So in Isaiah you have a prophet that speaks of the royal dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ and it stands as it were for the lion on the faces of those standards. Uh, Jeremiah on the other hand was a servant, one that laboured in the things of God, answering of course to the ox in the faces of the standards. Ezekiel, whose title was the Son of Man, stated many times in this prophecy, stands of course for the man that was on the standards. And Daniel, who was inspired so strongly to, to proclaim the will of God, answers to the eagle as the symbol of the Spirit. And when you come to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you have the same theme, you know, as you have in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel because Matthew emphasises the royal dignity of Christ, Mark emphasises the servant characteristics of Christ, Luke emphasises that he was a son of man, tracing his genealogy back to Adam, and of course John emphasises the spirit nature of his ministry. And these answer to the four great major prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. Take even the names of the prophets, and that too is very, very important. All these names are vitally important that you find in the Bible. Take then for the names of the various prophets. Now Isaiah means Yah will save. It's the Hebrew form of the word Jesus. So Isaiah and Jesus mean the same thing. It means Yah will save. Jeremiah on the other hand means he whom Yah appoints and exalts. And Ezekiel signifies Ale or God will strengthen and his title, the Son of Man. Whilst Daniel means God or Ale will judge. Now we're going to string those all together and make a sentence. And the sentence is this, that Yahweh will save through him who he appoints and exalts. For he will strengthen the Son of Man that he might judge on behalf of God. So you see, there you have your four major prophets and that is really the significance of the various names when they are linked together. Now let's just for a moment consider Isaiah the prophet as an individual. He is considered as a statesman prophet as far as the prophecies are concerned. We know nothing of his predecessors except his father's name. And yet he seems to be a man who was on familiar terms with even the kings and royalty of the time. He has easy access, for example, to Hezekiah the king. And yet on the other hand, he was a man that could make himself available to the lowest in the land. So he was a man of royal dignity and yet humble in his attitude. As far as Isaiah was concerned, he was extremely patriotic. He felt deeply for his nation. He was a prophet a poet and historian. He was a man that was married and he had two sons, as we shall find. Hence he was a man with the responsibilities of family life. We sometimes think that the prophets of God were men who were untouched 
with the normal circumstances of life as we know it. But here was a man that was married and we had children. We must sort of project ourselves into the circumstances of his life, understanding that he had to bring those children up. He had to labour in the home as well as perform the will and purpose of God as far as uh, the ministry was concerned. Hence, in this man Isaiah, we have not merely a visionary, but also a very, very practical man. And this is manifested in his prophecies. You will find, as we look at this prophecy in a moment, that halfway through this book, he becomes historian. And in the, prophet, in the prophecy itself, he outlines the principles that were governing the life of Hezekiah. Now, coming to the first verse of, the, of his book, we read the vision of Isaiah the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, Jotham reigned for 16 years. Ahaz reigned for 16 years. Hezekiah reigned for 29 years. We're also told that he commenced to prophesy in the days of Uzziah but it would appear that it would be towards the end of Isaiah's life. So we'll give him five years in the reign of Isaiah, and to that the 16 of Jotham, the 16 of Ahaz, and the 29th of Hezekiah. And he also, I believe, must have continued on into the reign of Manasseh. Because here we are told that he completed his ministry in the days of Hezekiah. So if we... If he was in the days of Manasseh, that would mean that as far as he was concerned, his ministry was for a period of about 68 years so that you could understand that he gave a long ministry to the things of God. He was not on his own. He had certain contemporaries. For example, Hosea the prophet, Amos the prophet, Micah the prophet were all contemporary with Isaiah. They may have been in different parts of the land. But there were contemporary prophets at that particular time. So you see, his voice was not alone heard. The voices of others were heard at the same time as that. I believe that as far as Isaiah was concerned, this chapter that we read this evening was the last chapter that he wrote. It must have been toward the last chapter that he wrote because he tells us that he, that he prophesied concerning the periods in the days of Hezekiah. So it must have been written after that period of time. And I believe that he would have written this chapter in the reign of Manasseh. Because when you come to consider the details of that chapter, the circumstances of the nation, as it is recorded in that chapter, it doesn't read as though it's the time of Hezekiah, where you'll have a tremendous reform. You read about the evil apostasy of that particular time. You read of a time when God doesn't even want their worship. Notice that in verse 13. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even your solemn meeting. Keep it. That's the voice of God to, to Isaiah. Not in the days of Hezekiah when there was a great reform, but I believe in the days of Manasseh because in the period of Manasseh, the temple was abandoned once again and the people were given their own uh, license and they turned away from the things of God and it was a time of great evil. As a matter of fact, we are specifically told in the book of Kings that Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and he persecuted and slew some of the prophets of God and I believe that it would have been in that period of time that Isaiah would have met his death. Jewish tradition suggest that he met his death by being sawn in halves, put in the log of a tree, and then the tree sawn in halves with Isaiah inside of it. And of course, uh, the Apostle Paul, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, speaks of some who were sawn asunder. And Jewish tradition identifies that with Isaiah. Could well have been that in the period of Manasseh that he met his death in that particular time. In any case, as far as Isaiah was concerned, he lived at a very significant time as far as the history of the nation uh, was concerned. It was a time of vacillating fortunes. For example, Isaiah the king was a very powerful king. We are told that he was helped of God. 
We're told of the cunning uh, uh, instruments of war that he invented, both of offense and defense. We're told of how he fortified the cities of Judah, how he strengthened its power. And under Isaiah, the strength of Judah rose very dramatically. His policy was followed by that of Jotham for 16 years. But meanwhile, as this was happening, in the north, the Assyrian power was on the march. And they were threatening the powers of Syria and also of Israel, the ten tribes. Then Jotham was followed by Ahaz, a very weak king indeed. And we're going to meet Ahaz in the prophecy of Isaiah. It lays the foundation of one of the most striking prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecy of Emmanuel. Now, as far as Ahaz was concerned, his policy was extremely weak. Isaiah pleaded with him to turn to God. He'd have nothing to do with it. He'd rather turn to the Assyrian. He was like Israel today, that is turning to every nation, but not all to, to God. And that uh, feature is a feature of uh, Isaiah's prophecy. So, as far as Ahaz was concerned, he preferred to enter into an alliance with, uh, with Assyria that he might overthrow two of his enemies in the north, Rezan of Syria and Pekah of Israel. And so, under these influences, Ahaz would have nothing to do with the prophecy, uh, with the work of Isaiah the prophet. In the seventh chapter of his prophecy, we read, It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up towards Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And on the background of that, the Emmanuel prophecy was given. Now, in the interwoven in the prophecy of Isaiah are these circumstances of the times. And this is most interesting, as we hope to set out, because, you see, as far as Isaiah was concerned, he not only foretold the future, but in the events of his own age, he saw, as it were, a type of the future. He lived at a time when he was able to see by the events that took place a foreshadowing of events that are going to take place in our day. That's the significance of his prophecy. We're going to see that because it's closely interwoven in his prophecy as a matter of fact, so closely indeed, that I don't think that we can understand the prophecy without understanding something of that history. Now let's have a look at the, uh, the prophet as a whole, the epitomizer. Now I don't know how this works. It's not working. If it's made in Australia, it's probably gone on strike. <laughs> Anyone know how it works or does it work? That's right. Well, I hope you can see that. Can you see that or do you want the light off? A button? It's okay? Yes, excellent. <laughs> so here we have an epitome of Isaiah's message. Now let's have a look at some of the remarkable things that you have in the Bible here and in the prophecy of Isaiah. How many books are there in the Bible? You all know that, surely to goodness. We learned it when we were at Sunday school, 66. And how many book, chapters in Isaiah? Well, we look at the last chapter and we learn 66. Now, how many books in the Old Testament? Well, we know there are 39. And how many in the New Testament? 27. And do you know that Isaiah, made up of 66 books, is divided into 39 of condemnation and 27 of redemption? Now, what is your Bible made up of? 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, ending with a curse, and 27 in the New Testament, removing the curse. What is Isaiah made up of? 39 chapters, implanting the curse, and 27 chapters, removing the curse. If you don't believe me, have a look at Isaiah. So we turn to the 39th chapter of Isaiah. And there, in the 39th chapter of Isaiah, we read these words at the verse 7. This is a warning to Hezekiah, king of Israel, or Judah. Of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, 
shall they take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, Hezekiah is told that the time is going to come when the people that he had defended would be taken into captivity. And therefore, as far as Hezekiah was concerned, his nation, as we read in verse 6, should be taken to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And even the sons of Hezekiah would be taken into Babylon. And that ends the first section up to chapter 39. Now you come to chapter 40, and what do we read? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. And it's a remarkable thing that all the Old Testament, uh, all the section of Isaiah up to chapter 39 is really an epitome of the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. You have it in the judgments that are poured out upon the nation and finally the judgment here poured out upon Judah. Whilst the rest of it is dealing with redemption. It's dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ as as the suffering servant of Yahweh. And so there is the removal of that curse that we have in the early parts of Isaiah. Rather remarkable. Now, we come here and we discuss the section of this prophecy one by one. First of all, you have this introduction, an epilogue. And notice this factor about Isaiah, which is very important, and you'll find it right throughout this prophecy. He is invariably a prophet of hope. Invariably a prophet of hope. With every message of condemnation, there comes a message of restoration. And that's a wonderful feature of Isaiah. Now, see it in the first chapter. Because there you have, of course, in that early chapter, as we read this evening, the indictment of the prophet upon the people of Israel at that time. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. And so he indicts the people. But look how that same prophecy finishes. Verse 26, I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. But on the other hand, Jerusalem's going to be changed. So you see, with every message of condemnation, there is a message of hope. So that we have in this section here, and in this transparency, we have the outline of the whole book. First of all, we have the introduction and epilogue. Then we have the day of Yahweh concerning Judah and Jerusalem. What I want you to note particularly, because it's no good putting an outline like that in your Bibles or anywhere else, unless it is exact according to Isaiah and not according to me. Because, you know, you very often see outlines that are artificial. So we must make perfectly certain that this is not artificial. And so we're going to look at these point by point. We come to this section here then, the day of Yahweh concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and you find that that takes us to the end of chapter 6. So when we come to the end of chapter 6, we find out whether or not the division is exact, and we find it is, because in chapter 7 he commences a new theme. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw this and that. So now in chapter 7, you see, we have the book of Emmanuel, or the day of Yahweh concerning Israel. And it goes to the end of chapter 12. When we come to the end of chapter 12 and we commence chapter 13, is there a division supplied by Isaiah? There is. Because there we go, the burden of Babylon. So you see... We have now from chapter 13 on to chapter 23 and 18 the day of Yahweh upon the nations. And you find that there the, uh, the nations are dealt with right to the end of that particular chapter. Then you have Israel, uh, the subject of his theme. Then we have the, the Yahweh sword upon Idumea. We have then a historic interlude between chapter 36 and chapter 39. Let's just have a look at that before we continue. So in chapter 36 and at verse 1, It came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defence cities of Judah and took it. Have you ever wondered why it was 
that Isaiah suddenly becomes a historian? Have you ever wondered why it is that he has outlined all these woes upon the various nations, of which there's a transparency here, if I can find it. Normally, I never find the transparencies until after the lecture, which is very good for me, but not very much good for the lecture. But, you know, you have it like this. I'm putting that over so you've got to listen to me and not write things down on paper. <laughs> now you see, here we have the burden of Babylon, the burden of Philistia, the burden of Moab and Damascus and so forth. All of these stated right down here to chapter 23, the burden of Tyre. Then we go on here to uh, the, the woes upon contemporary Israel and so forth. Then suddenly be, he becomes a historian. And the reason why that is set out in that fashion is this, that when, thanks very much, when Sennacherib came down through the countries ravaging the various nations, that's what he did. Sennacherib did all that. But everyone... those countries invaded the lot. But with every one of those prophecies and with every one of those woes, there is a message relating to our day. So you see, what Sennacherib did is what Gog's going to do. It's what Gog's going to do. Now you've got Babylon, which is Iraq today. You've got Philistia, which is the plains of Israel. You've got Moab, which is on the other side. You have Egypt. Now when when the Sennacherib came down, he swept down all those countries there and he went down as far... Yes, I can. He swept down the coastal plains of Palestine, destroying the nations as he went, and he came right down here towards the, uh, towards the area of uh, 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 Lake Ish. And there it was that he learned about the Egyptians, that the Egyptians had entered into an alliance with Hezekiah, and Egypt was going to come up and defend Hezekiah, uh, and that the people of Judah were putting their confidence in Egypt. So what Sennacherib did was to sweep down here and first of all destroy Egypt, or at least uh, defeat Egypt, and then he turned around to Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem, Sennacherib was destroyed. Now what Gog's going to do is exactly the same. Gog will sweep down the coastal plains of Palestine in the lightning attack upon Egypt. And when Egypt falls, Gog will come back to Jerusalem. And what happened to, to Sennacherib will happen to Gog. And that is, you see, why he suddenly becomes this historian here and he sets those details out after having made all those predictions concerning nations. And yet, in the marvellous way in which Almighty God has set out His Word, though these all had a primary application in the days of the prophet, they have an ultimate application today. Let us take, for example, one such prophecy, the 30th chapter of Isaiah. This is the chapter relating, of course, to, uh, to uh, Egypt. Now we read in verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, saith Yahweh, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down to Egypt, and have not ark at my mouth. He's condemning the people of Judah at that particular time. And that's exactly what many of them did, until Isaiah stood up against them, and Isaiah moved Hezekiah to say, We will not have anything more to do with Egypt. Until then, the people went down to Egypt, exactly as Israel is doing today. Now, have a look what he says in verse 8. Now go, write it before them in a table, on a tablet really, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, and that is the margin, that it may be for the latter days. That it may be for the latter days. So you see, that... Prophecy had an application in the days of the prophet. It has an application today. 
Now you see, we are in verse 18. Therefore will Yahweh wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be, be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For Yahweh is a God of judgment. So having dealt with the nation there, he now sweeps on right to the latter days, the days in which we are living. So that you see, when we come back and have a out, look at the, the outline that we are presenting there, in those nine principles, you have a complete outline of the prophecy of Isaiah. And if you were to read the book with that outline before you, you would have a guide that would help you in the better understanding of Isaiah's prophecy. When you come to the 39th chapter here, and uh, you, have, you commence on the prophecies of redemption and consummation, you're coming on, of course, to the principles of uh, the atonement as it was affected through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the three sections there, the supremacy of Yahweh, the suffering servant of Yahweh, the future glory promised by Yahweh. Make perfectly certain that our division is not an artificial one. So we go to chapter 48 and at the concluding verse of chapter 48. We read these words there in the last verse. There is no peace, saith Yahweh, unto the wicked. There is no peace unto the wicked. Now come to the last verse of 57 and we find the same <coughs> conclusion. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So you see there's another division by no less a person than Isaiah himself or the spirit in Isaiah ruling it off as it were dealing with the supremacy of Yahweh and saying there is no peace <coughs> saith Yahweh uh, to the wicked. Now he comes to the suffering servant of Yahweh and notice there is no peace saith my God. Elohim to the wicked. First of all in chapter 48 <coughs> you have Yahweh referred to. Now you have the word Elohim. There is no peace saith Yahweh unto the wicked. Have a look at our outline. That section is the supremacy of Yahweh. And Yahweh says that. Coming here is the suffering servant of Yahweh. He who is going to lead many to become the, as it were, the Elohim of the age to come. So you have the term, there is no peace of my Elohim to the wicked. So we come to the last section of chapter 66 and we have this wonderful statement there that uh, of course sets forth the purpose of God in the future and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me for their worm uh, shall not die neither shall their fire be quenched and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh basically the same thing with this difference that there people the worshippers of the age to come are going to be uh, shown that which shall warn them of the consequences of rebellion against almighty God so you see, there we have uh, this uh, section sectionized by Isaiah. <coughs> Another wonderful thing. Another very wonderful thing. <coughs> Excuse me. And that wonderful thing is there, that you have in these chapters here, three lots of nine chapters. So you have 27 chapters. Three lots of nine chapters. The very centre of those, the very centre, the centre chapter of the middle ninth chapter is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, drawing attention to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? So you can see there's a mathematical adjustment of things that right in the very heart of that section dealing with redemption, right in the very heart of it, right in the very middle of it, the very centre chapter, you have the one great chapter of the atonement the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and I believe that's quite a, a, a remarkable thing that that's set out in that fashion it emphasises the divine wonder of it all see you know nine threes are 27 and you know in the numerical significance of figures Three has the significance of a new life and nine has the significance of a restoration. And three nines 
speak of a, the restoration to a newness of life, which is, of course, redemption. There are other very remarkable things as far as the prophecy is concerned. You need to look for these yourself. For example, you know the number seven is the number of completeness. And there are seven everlasting things mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy. Seven everlasting things. One or two of them we may look at. Take Isaiah 55 and verse 3. There we read of the everlasting covenant that he makes with us. An everlasting covenant. In chapter 26 and at verse 4, you have the, there the everlasting strength uh, that he can reveal unto us. In the 45th chapter of Isaiah and verse 17, in the 45th chapter and verse 17, you have their everlasting salvation. And I'm used, I am quoting him in this fashion because I believe that the everlasting things that I've set them out build up a story. So you see, you have an everlasting covenant, Isaiah 55 and verse 3. Everlasting strength, Isaiah 26 and verse 4. Everlasting salvation, 45 and verse 17. Everlasting light, chapter 60 and verse 19. Everlasting kindness, 54 and verse 8. Everlasting judgment, 33 and verse 14. And finally, everlasting joy in chapter 35 and verse 10. So that you see, in this way, we can epitomise the whole book of Isaiah, but as we come and read through the passages of Isaiah themselves, we can ourselves help ourselves to better interpret that book. And I'm going to suggest to you other subjects that you might be able yourself to follow through. When you're reading the scriptures, you know, it's a very good idea to have a little notebook by your side. And if there are verses of the Bible that you don't understand, or if there are subjects that you want to follow through, note them in that little book. For example, when you commence a new book of the Bible, you might elect to see what that book might teach you concerning any particular subject. For example, you might say, well, we're starting to read whatever prophecy or whatever book we're going to commence to read according to our daily readings. So you want to know what that prophet is going to teach concerning the restoration of Israel. You set that as your task. When you're doing the daily readings, you're looking for that. You're looking for every verse to see what every verse says or what any verse might say concerning the restoration of Israel. You might find whole chapters that have no verse that can help you in your research. On the other hand, you come upon these various verses. But what that form of reading does is this. It makes you concentrate upon what you're reading. And it makes you read every chapter because it would be a pity, wouldn't it, to go right through a book but leave out one chapter. So you're not quite sure what he might say in that particular chapter upon any particular theme. So you see, when you're going through Isaiah again, just look for those everlasting things. Note down, perhaps, the names of God that you will find therein. There are many such. See what he says concerning, perhaps, the restoration of Israel or the kingdom of God. List and record these things and you will build up for yourself an analysis of that book that can be very, very helpful to you. I've done that with many books of the Bible. For example, I've opened here at the second of Peter. And I can tell you what Peter tells you concerning God or concerning things to come or concerning Jesus Christ. So if we only had that one little book of the Bible... It tells me about God, that he is the Father, he created the world by his word, that he sustains the Jewish order by his word, that he has overwhelmed his creation in the past and will do so in relation to the, the political order of the future, that he has not slacked in performing his promises, that time is only relative to him, he provides time for repentance, he's a God that is long-suffering, he's one that desires the salvation of his creatures, his day limits our opportunity and his salvation is manifested through Christ. Now all that has told me concerning God in the second epistle of Peter. And in the, book, in the page before me, I can tell you what Peter says concerning false prophets, concerning the characteristic of a believer, what the judgment will reveal. Peter himself, 
details concerning life and so forth. It's an excellent and easy way of studying the scriptures. Now I know my time has gone and I can sense the impatience of my chairman on my left. He may think he disguises that. I can feel it very well so it comes out like this. And uh, I, I, I'm going to stop in about half an hour so it be quite close. <laughs> and uh, we have therefore just set to you tonight an introduction showing you the analysis or the outline of this uh, wonderful book, uh, the book of Isaiah. Remember the name, it means the same as Jesus. It means that Yahweh will save. And you know that is the name of Jesus. Not merely salvation, but Yahweh will save. And we read in the second of Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The Isaiah foreshadowed that and Isaiah also predicted that in the pages of his book.